Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks! Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us live from Boston, Massachusetts, is a comedian, Nash Flynn. She's also a writer and a host of several podcasts, so say hello, Nash. Hello. And how are you doing this lovely evening? I am good. How about you? I'm pretty good. Um, We usually record much earlier, but it doesn't matter, but it's always fun to do it in kind of what I call the evening, and for you, it's 8 p.m. there, right? That's true. It is. It is 8. (laughs) The end of my day. Yeah, I figured. But uh, you are a comedian, and... I don't know if my audience fully knows this, but comedy is my favorite thing in the whole world. There's nothing I would rather spend my time doing than supporting comedy, going to comedy shows, and loving all things comedy. So, uh, with that said, I'm really happy to have our first comedian on the show. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the scene there, what it's like, what you're doing? I'm not doing a lot, to be honest with you. Uh, You know, once the pandemic hit, I was just starting to do comedy. Um, And so, largely, my my exposure to comedy has been from my basement (laughs) on zoom calls so oh yeah i totally understand that although i have seen i mean you have a very funny twitter account and you're a very funny person so um yeah but that does suck i mean oh thank you so much that's definitely a problem and you do host two podcasts right i do i do um yes death and friends is my primary one because in addition to being a comedian i'm a death historian um and my other one is tomorrow today which is about academic research and trying to bring it into a more public sphere very cool that's awesome it was uh, so someone on Twitter told me to follow your account, and then like we found it, and then I was like, "Oh wow, you're a death historian. That's incredible." So uh, let's let's qu- quickly segue into that. Um, first of all, just for the average Joe who has no idea what that means, like what exactly is a death historian in your definition? Um, so I actually studied death ways, which is an anthropological uh, research designed to basically study a culture through how it sort of works around death, you know, what the rituals are, what the burials look like, what the remembrance looks like. So basically looking at a culture through death as an ecosystem, as a way to sort of figure out what what a culture is doing, or over time where a culture is going, especially if there's cross-cultural contact or wars or famines, sort of things that bring two cultures together and one assimilates into another one or is eradicated by another one. Um, That's mainly where my focus is. So looking where, where are those cultures collaborate in the very physical landscape of death. Um, but death is not, it's not been around an enormous long time. It is an anthropological undertaking um, and it's, it is relatively new to the scene. So normally I get the same reaction every time, you know, what the, what the hell does that mean? Um, so, so yes, your, your listeners would not be alone in wondering what that is. Well, that's really cool. And I'm, I have tons of questions now to ask about that just as a discipline. I think my main first question would be, um, Many disciplines like create an index to kind of measure cultures against each other, not as in like superior or less superior, but just like something to kind of compare and contrast them. Is there such a thing for like the way cultures deal with death? I mean, so because Deathways is so new um, and it's still sort of being developed, I don't think there's a specific standard that we've used. Um, I actually looked at um, cultures in crisis. So basically what happens when your culture breaks down from a very high mortality rate? Um, and what happens to your death ways as, as your culture is falling apart and what happens in the rebuild. So my master's thesis was specifically looking at 1620 uh, Plymouth um, in the States um, and sort of because they had such a high mortality rate that first winter, uh, it was about 50 to 60 percent, you know, looking at what they lost and then what they started to build back after they sort of started collaborating with the nearby uh, 
indigenous tribe, the Wampanoag. And, um, you know, as time went on, as more people came over, uh, how, how, that, how the deathway sort of built themselves back up. Wow. That's just, I mean, my mind is going a million miles a minute with that. Um, I, yeah, it's funny because we started uh, the show in the pre-show little like sound check interview. My daughter, who's about to turn 10 months old, was like screaming. And I'm often very happily shocked by how low the infant mortality rate is. And when I study like anything about history, that's always the first thing that jumps out at me and like not naming kids because they were likely to die and all that. So I'm curious, um, would you say that America, since we have a very high, like, I don't want to say health index or anything, but you know, our, our life expectancy is pretty high and we have like a pretty good standard of living here. Is, is the way we deal with death similar to other cultures with this similar standards or are we different? Do you think? Um, I'm not sure that I could totally answer that because I, I focus so specifically on specific events. I will say, I think in mo- modern times, we deal with death almost not at all in the West. Um, you know, after looking at history, and I actually, I actually just finished a podcast a couple of days ago about the Victorian good death concept. Um, and it's, it's actually a really fascinating way to look at death because the Victorians built up so much of our funerary culture and how we sort of used to deal with death. But in, in modern America, in the modern West, I feel like it's so sanitized now that we're actually not dealing with very physical death. It's sort of all an emotional project. And it's an emotional project that we tend to not seek out in other people. You know, everybody's grief is this sort of solitary thing. And um, and we don't deal in dead bodies or people dying in front of us. So I feel like we actually don't really deal with death at all in modernity. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's basically my presumption for starting this podcast. And after uh, volunteering in hospice, it became very evident to me that we have a not talking about death problem, at least in my limited, very limited perspective of uh, hospice care, because not only are the patients not always prepared for it, but especially the families. And uh, yeah, I think um, it's fascinating. And so do you think like right now, are you kind of like, I, I know it's impossible to like, literally do this, but are you somewhat more than casually like professionally eyeing like the crisis in Ukraine and, and the war with Russia there and like how that that mortality rate is going to affect those two cultures and what you talked about with like the linking I mean modernity stuff uh scares me a little bit because it's especially in a situation like that it's, it's so tenuous but I will say um, I'm sure that there will be you know very very physical remnants of whatever happens um in the Ukraine and with Russia but I will say one of the things you start to see in death ways when you're looking at times of war is this sort of war against dead bodies and wars against, you know, like cemeteries and memorials that often become the brunt of, you know, an invading force. You know, they use death ways as another form of violence. Oh, wow. That's very fascinating. Um, Have you studied like the peculiar 1950s cultures where like the world was suddenly privy to this idea that one nation could like, quote unquote, blow up the whole world with nuclear arsenals. And then people were building like shelters and stuff. Is that, have you ever looked into that? I have depression. The modern world really scares me in a lot of ways. So I try, I try not to participate so much in the death waves that are happening right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. That's very cool. And I, I admire you for not only saying that, but like <laughs> explaining it that way, because yeah, that's, um, I'm asking from that exact kind of direction almost like, yeah, can you help? Can you help me? Um, <laughs> give me some stats that make me feel better, please. Um, but yeah, no, that's cool. Um, and uh, yeah, and I also think um, while it is awesome that you're a death historian and I did have you on in part because of that and especially because you also host a podcast that talks about it, but I did want to hear kind of like the intersectionality between a personality that studies death and a personality that loves comedy I personally find a huge, obvious connection between the two, but that's not my, <laughs> um, 
it's not my forte to explain that, but I'm, I'm assuming you probably can. So, to, you know, obviously you probably get asked that a lot, right? Um, I actually don't get asked that as much as you would think. But um, for me, it really is. Um, I have a lot of social anxiety, if I wasn't clear. Um, but for me, performing and studying dead people is sort of of the same thing. Like, I still get the dopamine from participating in that conversation, but it's a monologue. You know, the, the audience isn't really going to engage with me that much the dead people really aren't going to engage with me that much. So for me, it's it's sort of exploring how I understand my own participation in the modern world via a lens where I'm not going to get a ton of feedback unless it's laughter. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I've listened to a lot of podcasts, three different podcasts in the last like two weeks, kind of were talking about that famous study where they interviewed people or polled people or whatever. And they said that uh, there's a greater tendency of a fear of speaking in public than a fear of death in itself. And I, you know, that's always tossed around as a joke. So you're like literally confronting the two at the same time and kind of uh, playing with that. So that's pretty awesome. I was just gonna say, I think it's, it's a really fun intersection that nobody really gets to explore too much. You know, comedians, I think, on the whole tend to be on the darker side of things. There's a lot of trauma that infers a lot of comedy. Um, and for me, it was it was easy sort of connecting the two. You know, I have depression. I've had suicidal ideation for many like, years. And so sort of being able to talk about that in a space that feels like I could be doing either thing. You know, there's a lot of comfort in studying dead people whose whose whole stories, whose whole biographies are complete. And when you're sort of in an existence that feels very, very, you know, tenuous in modern life and very, it can be very, you know, scary. Um, you know, sort of looking back at some of those those full histories and being like, this is how it started, this is how it ended, and now it's wrapped up and done, and you can infer what you'd like out of it. I think there's a real comfort in that for me. Yeah, totally. And um, you know, you've mentioned it twice now, and you've and you've opened up about depression and and suicide and all that, and it's that stuff that I care deeply about, and it's come up quite a few times on the show. So first of all, thank you, and second of all, do you think that? by speaking about it and talking about it and opening up about it and that more and more people are doing that now, do you think that's like helping us as a society? Cause it's kind of tangentially related to my, we don't talk about death or anything. Like I also think we don't talk about suicide, which is, I understand the reasons why I understand that I now have to put a warning on this podcast and I will, but, but are you following what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, yeah, no, um, I, I do agree with you. I think, I, I mean, I do hope talking about it helps other people. I'm not sure that my, you know, my approach necessarily works for everyone, but I, I like talking about it in part because I feel like even in comedy, we talk about depression, we talk about anxiety, but there's not a lot of comics that actually talk about suicidal isolation as a very specific topic. Um, I've had it basically since the moment I could sort of self-actualize and it's something that I even mentioned to my parents when I was young and they sort of brushed it off and they were like, you'll be fine. We did lose a family member to suicide. Um, and we also never talked about that. So to your point, too, I think we have a tendency to be like, okay, don't do it because it's really selfish. When in actuality, it's not selfish at all. It's We've been trying for so long to get anybody to listen that it becomes sort of this very topic that nobody really wants to deal with or grapple with. And everybody tries to make you feel like it's your fault. Wow. That's so that is deep and profound. And <laughs> like I said, I'm a huge fan of comedy. So obviously I've had many comics that I admire and like who've uh, killed themselves. And it's, it's, it's shocking when it happens. And it's also the least shocking thing ever. Right. And I think it's a wonderful, noble idea to like put yourself out there and try to make people laugh. But I also think it's a wonderful, noble idea to put yourself out there and say like, sometimes for reasons I can't explain to myself or out loud to anyone, I'm deeply, deeply depressed. And you know, and I'm, I'm trying with this podcast to kind of get people to think about all of these things. So is there, um, since you've had that since childhood and since you've grown up with that feeling, 
do you see life as like a test of you against that? Um, I did for a long time. I did for a really long time. But one of the things um, that happened to me when the pandemic is obviously um, all of my depression got worse, pretty much like everybody else. Um, and one of the conclusions that I really came to in this weird sort of um, exploration catharsis was that I actually find it a really, really powerful thought that I could take my own life at any moment. It feels sort of like taking back the urge and the thought and making it something that I can use. Um, and I feel like that's really helped me a lot in, in thinking like, well, I could not be here any moment, but I keep doing it because I've decided to. And that sort of, you know, phrasing of it, that sort of understanding of it helps me not want to as much. That's really cool. Um, I really appreciate that answer. Wow. Um, we're kind of like halfway through the interview. So I, I want to ask you the pivotal question that we ask all our guests. And I think you've uh, done a great job of explaining who you are and how you've come to the way you think in your pathology. So thank you. And so, the, you know, the question I've, you should know it already is just, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And, and the only thing I like to make sure that the guest understands is I'm really asking you about like your vivid imaginary, like version to yourself. So it's not important if you think it's realistic or not, just what do you think is going to happen to you? Um, honestly, I, um, I don't actually think about what happens after a whole lot because I'm so focused, especially historically on what's happening as you die, you know, in death and friends, we, um, we talk a lot about, you know, that moment of death when we declare somebody's dead, when, when, how death actually occurs from a specific thing. So I actually haven't spent an enormous amount of time thinking about what happens after, but I did, um, when you asked me to come on, I did listen to a couple of the previous interviews. And so I knew that you were going to ask me this question. I started really thinking about it. Um, and I, I think my whole answer hinges on, I have a very vivid imagination, but I can't apply it here. And I honestly really wish I could. I wish religion worked for me. I wish I could sort of apply something in, in the forward notion. Um, but I think partially because my brain tends to run so dark is that I really do feel like it's a very hard stopping point and there's sort of nothing beyond that. And I mean, like biologically, chemically, I think sort of quote unquote science is sort of with me. Like we sort of just break down and become a part of our environment. Um, and then, you know, we're, we feed animals, we, we come back as, you know, plants. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that, but I do feel like for me, consciousness is sort of, sort of stopped and gone. And actually, excuse me, if I could just like keep on talking forever. Please, please, please. No, this is the whole part of the show. <laughs> uh, there was a study that just came out recently. Uh, Dr. Zemmer's group, I believe in the University of Louisiana, just released a study where they actually were in the middle of um, some kind of medical scan, a CT scan or an MRI, and their patient died as they were recording. Um, he had a bunch of seizures and then he passed as, as they had it. So this is the first time they actually have recorded an actual person's brain death as, as a medical use. And it was really, really fascinating. It's actually, like, I, I believe it was published by Living Science. Um, and it's a, it's a really fascinating look at what, what the human brain does at death. And there is evidence, according to this team, that you actually do get a sort of life replay. Your, your brain activity kicks way up in the last 60 to 90 seconds. And it seems like you are getting some kind of replay, some memory recall before the brain actually dies. Wow. And, and then I would further posit um, out of optimism and joy at hearing that, that that 90 seconds could feel like an eternity because there's already on record, you know, people who have had like 10 year long dreams where they were like in a, you know, they could not get out of the dream they wanted to and like 10 real time years passed in that dream. And then of course they wake up and it's, you know, been like an hour or two of sleep. Yeah. I mean, you might get a whole nother shot at things, you know? Yeah. So that's crazy. And actually I did want to ask you on that note, what are like some of the more mystical experiences you've had or like, what is your opinion of like inexplicable phenomenon and like the metaphysical tales that we tell ourselves and have and all that? 
Um, in truth, I would absolutely love to have had any of experiences or like any connection to it. The, the closest thing I have is I had a, I had a little cousin who told his mother when he was like two or three that he remembered being in her womb. And she was like, that's not actually possible. And then he was like, yeah, you loved that song that she used to play for him. It was like on a baby Einstein video. She never played it. She only ever played it in the car. So he never heard it as a child. He'd only ever heard it when she was pregnant and he was able to sort of replicate it. Um, so I think that's probably as close as I get, really. I do wish ghosts were real. Honestly, I'm very, very passionate about wishing ghosts were real. Um, just because I think that would be so entertaining. I don't know. I wish, but no. No, and I understand that. So on that on that line, I kind of want to have some fun fact time with you because you really are. You're a historian of death, and I love it. And your your area of expertise is obviously the most familiar to our audience because like it's America is actually becoming a country and a country during it and all that. So it exists here, but what is your favorite uh, morbid tale of like high mortality rates, like in some situations? So you brought up obviously 1620 and, and uh, what we call the pilgrims. Um, what, what is like another example that's just like absurd or something maybe people haven't really thought about or heard about? Um, so there's a story I'd love to tell. It's not a very high mortality rate. For, so for your, to answer the mortality rate part of your question, um, I will say, I think, I think in, in my studies, um, I think one of the sadder, more wide scoping events that often gets overlooked is the Irish famine of the 1840s. Um, in, in like terms of specificity, uh, I think in like 1847, we call Black 1847. I mean, it was, it was a widespread death in Ireland, but there is a mass grave outside of the city of Cork um, that is sort of just a field now, but it contains something like 40,000 bodies over the course of a year or so uh, that number might be might be a little bit inaccurate but that's as close as I remember um, and, and it it is one of those things that the famine you know we call it a famine in um, in you know the current context but really the Irish do not refer to it as a famine because the famine implies a crop failure and what is actually happening in Ireland at that time is sort of the British eradicating Irish culture very deliberately with very specific governance choices happening in London that were not connected to Ireland at all. Um, so the Irish are really um, sort of, you know, um, indentured servants on their own land and then starved out because the British wanted to buy it and use the resources. So um, in terms of mortality, that one, that one is the bummer, but I do have a favorite story if you'll indulge me just a little, little bit more. Yes, please, 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 please. <laughs> so one of my favorite, favorite historical figures and not for any good reason whatsoever. She's a prostitute in 19th century New York. Her name is Helen Jewett. Um, she does not live very long. She dies when she's about 26. Um, she had a not so great upbringing. She was born in Maine. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother died shortly after she was born. She makes her way down to Boston and to New York. She becomes a prostitute. Um, she is murdered by a client brutally. Um, and then later her body is dug up and donated quote unquote, to the medical college. But one of the things that I love about Helen's story um, is that in the time between when she was, you know, <clears throat> in New York and before she gets murdered, obviously, she has this, you know, she's a very, very, she's good at what she does. She works for the best brothel in New York. And everybody says that she's very smart. She's beautiful. But when she gets her own money, she buys these beautiful dresses that she has made for herself. And she buys classic like literature, like she goes out to find what people are talking about, what people are reading. And everybody says she's incredibly bright. So one of the reasons that I love Helen Jewett's story so much, not because of how she dies or how she was raised, is those, is those days that I can sort of picture very viscerally, where she's got this money that's her own. 
she's got like all of this freedom and she's, you know, maybe walking around New York um, with her, with her book of the week or book of the day, sort of just enjoying the sunshine. And I love that because it's one of those things to me that is this very, like you have the beginning, you have the end. And then what I think history sometimes tends to lose is what happens in the middle, what happens on a day where they're just bored or they have nothing to do because we tend to think of them as characters and they become very flat to us as historical people. But I always have this like nice little moment of like Helen like sitting in Central Park with her book and the sunshine and just enjoying it and not remembering how things started or how things are about to end for her. That is so cool. That was a great story. Thank you. Wow. Um, we are heading up to the end of the interview. So I always give my guests the last word, which is just a chance to tell the internet and the people listening what you think. I would also like to, if I can make a special request and by all means you can not do it if you don't feel comfortable, but uh, since I do love comedy, maybe just like three comedians you think people should check out and they can be super, super famous. It doesn't matter, but I want my audience to get into comedy. So for comedians that I like actually love that I will watch at any moment, uh, Robin Williams is always my number one. He's obviously passed. And so he's hopefully watching most of the afterlife being like, yeah, I know he's not, but I can believe it. <laughs> um, he's, he's my favorite for for modern comics who are working right now um i think there is very there's almost nothing like watching daniel floss do comedy he's a scottish comedian he has two netflix specials out now jigsaw and uh dark i believe is the other one but he does also sort of this dark storytelling um and so his his comedy is very it, it's traumatic but he also is is weaving together a narrative and it's not always funny and that's the i think that's the mark of true talent is how long you can take a crowd attending a comedy show to you know through a couple minutes of non-comedy you know to build a story and then be able to bring them back into the sphere of laughter again after that i mean i think he's really quite brilliant so always a fan of his yeah um i think you asked me for three and i'm trying to think um, because Daniel is so good at it. I, I do think in, in terms of other um, comedians, there are a bunch of, you know, friends that obviously I want to plug. Man, this is actually harder than I thought it would be because I wanted to say everybody. It is hard. And I thought about it before I asked you, and I was like, if someone asked me, it would be very hard. So I, I, that's why I said if you can't do it, it's fine. So, But I like, I like the big push to Robin Williams because I think a lot of people think of him as like Mrs. Doubtfire in movies. And no, he's also, I mean, he's a comedian in everything he did, but yeah, and a philosopher. Um, and then, yeah, we'll definitely have to check out the second person you mentioned who I think I've heard of but not seen. So I'm actually really excited and I have Netflix. So obviously I'm going to check that out. But um, please, if you can, take us out with something you feel that uh, you want to just express to our audience. I think one of the things that has made paladin the current world a little bit easier is the study of history. I know typically we don't apply history to our real life situations because either we're, we're not teaching it well or we're teaching it in these sort of bubbles. You know, in, in academia, I do feel like we never even learn that things are happening at the same time. You just sort of learn them as discrete um, events and then you memorize the facts and you never want to deal with it again. But I do think history can be comforting in that way where you see from the beginning and the end of the narrative, you see all of the places that it's connected to. And you can kind of say, well, this makes me feel better about this. You know, we are in a sort of an unprecedented time, I think, where we're getting so much of global news happening at once, bad things everywhere all of the time because we have a 24-hour media and because of the internet, really. We have access to every bad thing that could possibly happen. The history is full of those bad things and it's full of those good things, too. And I think sometimes even if it's for only our, the purpose of our mental health and to keep going and to stop crisis fatigue, I think sometimes we have to celebrate those little things that we can find in history or find now that help us bear the rest of it. 
Wow, that was amazing. That was really, really deep and profound. I think that's the second time I've said that about something you said. So I feel like this whole interview was like that. And uh, yeah, you're definitely, um, you're a national treasure. So I hope that people check you out. Um, I said it at the beginning, but she's all over the internet and especially Twitter. So it's Nash Flynn. And uh, please check the bio notes and everything for the spellings and all that. But um, thank you again, Nash, for coming on our show and helping us put another nail in the coffin. You're uh, truly, truly the first death historian we've had and a true expert on all things death and also you're funny and you're interesting so thank you this was a wonderful way to spend my time so i hope you had a good time and thank you so much for having me and to our audience listening at home uh please support the show by subscribing and if you can rate us and lastly head over to mikeyop.com and maybe subscribe to the weekly essay that goes along with the podcast um and either way we appreciate you listening we appreciate you nash and we will see you soon walking alone